This morning is part two of our consideration on the sixth commandment, thou shall not kill. And we considered last week the progressive intensification of the commandment from what was permitted in the old covenant to its elimination in the new. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus recalls the old letter and he says, you have heard it said, and then he introduces the new spirit, but I say to you. So he pushes beyond the legal casing of the commandment and burrows down into its marrow, into its spirit. So whereas before murder was forbidden, now under Jesus' handling, it's undue anger. He takes it to the very root. We must strive to live at peace with all men. Before, retribution was permitted, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Now, we must love our enemies, turning the other cheek and going the extra mile. But this raises a series of questions that we didn't answer last week. Principally, what does the sixth commandment and Jesus' reinterpretation of it mean in relation to things like war or to law enforcement or to self-defense? It's more helpful to put the question in its widest possible scope. Are Christians permitted to take the life of other humans? And if so, then under what circumstances? Now, quite obviously, too many circumstances enter into the picture to address them all. We won't take on that fool's errand. But instead, what we'll try to do is provide a framework through which to approach the question or questions. And I won't this morning pretend to make a definitive proclamation on these issues. My aim is much more modest. And it's simply to provoke discussion, whether within oneself or our community, as we try to discern God's will, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So, I'd like to begin by considering the relationship between the church and the state. Now, initially, this may seem to be beside the point. But as we progress, um, I think it will become abundantly clear how this bears upon our inquiry. The church and the state bear two different kinds of authority which authorize them to do different things. So the church is given the keys to the kingdom, Matthew 16, and to the state is given the sword. And so let's begin with the state. Its origin is present in the Noahic covenant, the covenant that God made with Noah, which we considered last week. That covenant in Genesis 9 was principally about the continued existence of the human race. Though our wickedness had been relentless and justly deserved punishment, the Lord promised, I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. In other words, the covenant is grace. The human race is going to endure, and therefore certain stipulations are in order. Namely, 
human wickedness needs to be restrained. Hence, in the covenant, the Lord institutes a system of justice. So if you can remember last week, Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, the Lord says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. It's the law of retribution, lex talionis in the Western tradition, that will keep us from devolving into pre-flood conditions. The scripture says the earth was filled with violence. So the Lord authorizes violence to limit violence. And the purpose is order. For the human race to endure, there must be some semblance of order. And that order is maintained by just retribution. And so here, the state is given its authorization. Now, there's no mention of the state in the covenant, but it arises naturally from what the covenant requires. And that is a system of of justice. So Jonathan Lehman in his book Political Church puts it this way, the inevitable and unavoidable implication is that groups of people living in society must form or support a government, an orderly set of publicly recognized institutional processes in order to employ this God-given justice mechanism justly. And so what the covenant envisions, a a form of government arising naturally from what's required, it comes to pass in Israel's history. The nation begins as a loose confederacy of tribes, and slowly, as the need arises, it becomes more and more centralized until, at last, it becomes a monarchy. So the state is authorized in this post-flood covenant, and it exists to maintain order. Karl Barth summarizes, the state is not a product of sin, but one of the constants of divine providence in action against human sin. It is therefore an instrument of divine grace. So the apparatus of the state is not sinful in itself, but it is instituted by God as a constraint against human sin. So the state bears the sword to restrain human wickedness. And this is from God. You guys know the chapter. The Apostle Paul fills out the picture. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. He says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. God. So the state is not a human institution, but a divine one, or a divinely authorized one. Its power to wield the sword is not from below, but from above. It's not illegitimate for the state to take human life, because it was granted that authority by God. Hence, as divinely authorized, Its citizens are required to be in subjection to it. But the apostle continues. He says in verses 3 of 4 of that same chapter, 
for rulers are not a curse, or, or rather, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God for your good. But if you do evil, be afraid, the apostle says. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So bearing the sword, the state, is an instrument of divine wrath upon human sin. It instills fear in those who do evil, keeping them in check at the cost of their own lives. It's a regime of provisional judgment, witnessing to the final judgment to come. And so as such, modern nation states have the responsibility to punish evildoers, both foreign and domestic. However, that punishment is limited by the covenant. Remember what it says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. So the state is authorized to punish, but the punishment must fit the crime. It must be proportional. So we can take a step back. God has authorized government, the state, to bear the sword. And what that means, their vocation then, is to exercise justice and retribution in the name of maintaining order. And we could push this a little further and talk about how that serves the ends of redemption, um, the, the mission of the church, but that's for another time. So the state bears the sword, but the church bears the keys to the kingdom. The state receives its authorization in Genesis 9. The church receives its authorization in Matthew 16. Again, a very well-known passage. Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then in verses 18 and 19, Jesus responds and says this, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now there's much to say here, but our focus is upon the keys. And these keys are strange. They do not open and close, but they bind and loose. Right? What are keys for? They're for opening and closing, locking and unlocking, opening doors. But not these keys. They're for binding and loosing. Why? Well, quite simply, the keys do not grant the authority to confer salvation or to revoke it. The keys are not for opening and closing. People enter the kingdom of God not by human pronouncements or actions, but by the working of God. He alone possesses authority to open and close the doors of the kingdom. That is not what the keys are for. Instead, they're for binding and loosing. What is binding and loosing? Well, Christ demonstrates. Peter makes his confession of Jesus' identity. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And Jesus responds, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus affirms and validates Peter's confession. Peter did not learn about Jesus' identity from his own soul, from flesh and blood. Instead, from the Father in heaven. And so what is true in heaven, Jesus acknowledges and affirms on earth. And then, in the very next breath, he authorizes Peter to do the same thing for others. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Listen, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Heaven sets the precedence, and we follow suit here on earth. So in other words, the keys that Jesus gives to the church grants it authority to judge a person's confession. As Peter judged Peter as rather as Jesus judged Peter's confession, so he commissions the church to do the same thing. And again, take note. Jesus did not use the word whomever, but whatever. He says whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, in this instance, things, not people, are being bound. And what things? In light of the context, it only can be a person's confession. So with the authority of the keys comes uh, the authority to make binding judgments on the authenticity of a person's confession. That is, when someone confesses Jesus as the Christ, when they say, I'm a Christian, it's the responsibility of those who hold the keys to judge whether that confession is from, from flesh and blood, whether it's a false confession, or whether it's from heaven, whether it's true. So the faithful confession is loosed, and the heretical confession is bound. So in his book, uh, Desire of the Nations, theologian Oliver O'Donovan puts it this way, the church that gathers must have defined the central point which it gathers, uh, to which it gathers. He says, the apostolic confession of Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, St. Matthew would have us understand, is the confession that defines the church as such. Peter's confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, is what defines the church. It's what defines a Christian. And it's the church's responsibility to judge that confession, to make sure it's authentic. Now, the next time the keys are mentioned is in the context of church discipline, a few chapters on in Matthew 18. And in the context, it's about excommunicating a brother from the church. He sins against one and He's confronted and refuses to repent. Then he's confronted by a few more, still refuses to repent. Then he's brought before the whole church and still refuses to repent. And finally, Jesus says, count him as a Gentile and a tax collector and excommunicate him from the church. And then he goes on to say the very same thing he just said in Matthew 16 about binding and loosing. So, there's more to be said for that passage, but we need to move quickly. The local church exercises 
the authority of the keys by admitting um, a person into the company of believers on the basis of their confession and by removing a person from the company of believers based on a life contrary to their confession. So if someone claims Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and yet they're living consistently and habitually and unrepentantly in a manner that is not consistent with that, the Lord gives the church exercise to declare them apart from Christ. So, entrusted with the keys, the church exercises a different type of authority than the state. A more terrible authority. Excommunication from the church is effectively a death sentence. A pronunciation that one remains outside of Christ. It's true in heaven, we're acknowledging it on earth. Again, O'Donovan, he says, the only judgment which the church has to reckon is the final judgment. Dividing between belief and unbelief. The secular authorities, on the other hand, deal in provisional and penultimate judgments. So we're dealing with two different things here. The church does not create believers or unbelievers, but recognizes them. Again, it's analogous to the state's work. The state does not create a guilty party and an innocent party but rather it acknowledges them. That's what the whole justice system is about, to figure out as best as it can who's already guilty and who's already innocent. So the moment the criminal act was committed, those two states came into being. And it's the state's job to identify what's already the case, who's guilty, who's not. And so it is for the church. The keys don't grant anyone the ability to confer belief or unbelief. Rather, what the keys are about is identifying those things. God giving the church authority to say, okay, believer, not a believer. So its job is to determine the state that a person is in, either admitting them into fellowship or else excommunicating them. And as the state is liable to get things wrong, so is the church. But that does not invalidate its authority. So, The picture that I'm trying to paint here hopefully is becoming a little bit more clear. Whereas the state's purpose is bearing the sword to exercise retribution and justice, the the church's purpose in bearing the keys is just the opposite. It's about mercy and suffering. That well-known passage on church discipline, Matthew 18, establishing the church's authority in these matters is drastically tempered by what comes next. Peter asks Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus responds, I do not say uh, up to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. So the sword that the state bears demands justice, but the keys that the church bears demand mercy. And so if we return to the passage on secular government in Romans 13, we find that it comes as a parenthesis between two passages on the life of the church. So if you read Romans 12, it's all about living in the church. It's all about how we're supposed to operate. And then there's this little parenthesis, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 13, on the government. And then we go right back to the church 
um, following that in Romans 13. And what you find in looking at church, state, church, is that the contrast between the two couldn't be greater. In contrast to the state, the church is commanded to never pay back evil for evil. That's the end of Romans 12. And to never take revenge. But instead, it's told to leave room for wrath. Well, who bears God's wrath? Who bears the authority to execute God's wrath on the earth? The state does. So he says, leave room for wrath. So either the state's going to take care of that, or God will take care of it on the last day. So on our part, there is to be no retaliation or vengeance, but only love for the enemy, which entrusts the whole of judgment to the decisive act of of God. And after a word about the state, the apostle returns to the church again. So the precise payment of dues that holds within the secular order, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, is contrasted with the unmerited bestowal of love within the church. So he says it's the job state to execute wrath, judgment. And then he says about the, to the church, he says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. So the moral calculus of just retribution does not hold within the church. Why? Simply because grace. Because grace. Because that's not how the Lord deals with us. Thus, in another passage, when believers are pursuing lawsuits against one another in the secular courts, 1 Corinthians 6, you guys know the passage, um, it's an utter failure of what the church is supposed to be. So the Apostle Paul laments, 1 Corinthians 6-7, he says, actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. And he says this, why not, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? So rather than pursue litigation against one another, believers are to simply accept wrong, and being defrauded. The church does not operate by the old law, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but the law of Christ. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So, we can summarize the difference between the church and the state under three different headings. Authority, vocation, and age. So both institutions bear their own particular authority. The church, the keys, the state, the sword. Those particular authorities account for distinct vocations. The church, mercy and suffering, and the state, justice and retribution. And those distinct authorities and vocations can be placed under the wider category of age. The church belongs to the age to come. Its witness is to the inexhaustible mercy of the gospel. And the state belongs to the age that's passing. Its witness is to the old order bound by the constraints of sin and death. And so with the two institutions demarcated from one another, their roles understood we can return to our question and state it more clearly. 
The question has never been, can the church bear arms institutionally? That's simply beyond the question. The question is rather, to what extent, if any, can members of the church bear the sword reserved for the state? So we're not asking whether the church as an institution can take up arms. It can't. The answer for that is no. For us, the name of the game is not about survival, but about witness. And I think the only justification needed to support that position is Jesus' disarmament of Peter. Put your sword back into its place. And of course, we're not Jesus. His vocation is unique. There's a discontinuity between his situation and ours, yet he's our example. You have been called for this purpose, says Peter, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. So his patient suffering is the paradigm that the church is called to imitate. And to this, of course, the church witnesses. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 and 34, the unknown author of that epistle writes to his audience and says, Remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by being sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourself a better possession and a lasting one. So the church displayed an astonishing commitment to never return evil for evil. Rather than taking up arms to defend their property and their dignity, they endured suffering through reproaches and tribulations, and even accepted joyfully the seizure of their property. Such is the church's calling, to witness through patient endurance that we have a better possession and a lasting one. But patiently enduring injustice, the church not only witnesses to its hope, right? We do that because we have a better possession, but we also witness to the coming judgment. Leave room for wrath, the apostle says. Refusing to exact retribution on our part, we open the door for divine retribution. It's a matter of trust. The Lord will plead our cause. As it is said of Christ, who, being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. To him who judges righteously. So, I cannot entirely forbid the use of arms. There may be situations, most extreme and unprecedented situations, where it would be admissible. I, you know, we just can't foresee any of that. My point is not so much that situations don't exist, but that the trajectory of the Scripture compels us in the opposite direction. The rule is always patient endurance and suffering. The exception is taking up arms in defense. And I don't know where to draw that line, where that rule can be breached. 
But one thing I, I do think is that it's further down the line than often our temperament wants it to be. There's a streak of militarism in evangelicalism that runs deeply counter to the cross. Our first instinct cannot be retribution, but a readiness to endure almost any suffering. The church overcomes evil with good. It overcomes its enemies in love. Revelation 12, 11, they overcame him. That's the enemy. Because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And what is this word of their testimony? It says that they did not love their life even when faced with death. So when confronted, they would rather give up their life for the sake of Christ. How strange the church's warfare. So that brings us to the real question. To what extent, if any, can believers participate in the sword-bearing functions of the state? So the church is an institution, that's out of the question. We're talking individually. And the first thing to say is that the New Testament places no prohibition upon serving in the military or police force. We encounter many soldiers, and there is no instance where their occupation is explicitly condemned. John the Baptist rebukes soldiers, but not for being soldiers, but instead for being discontent with their wages and forcefully extorting money. Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 was the centurion of the Italian cohort, and yet he's described as a devout man who feared God. And moreover, we have examples of believers explicitly disavowing their sinful occupations, magicians and prostitutes and the like, but never soldiers. And of course, at that time, there was really no such thing as a police force. It was all military, so we can rightly include the police force in that. Okay, believers are permitted to serve in the state's sword-bearing functions, but we have to take our line of questioning a step further. Christians can participate in the state's sword-bearing occupations, but can they actually bear the sword? In other words, is it permitted for a member of the church to take the life of another human being on behalf of the state? Now, the answer to that question is yes, but with heavy qualification. Remember the commandment last week, you shall not kill. The only killing that is permitted is that which is authorized from above. God has, he's the only one with the authority to sanction um, the right for someone to take another's life. And so although the state is authorized from above, and it does not bear the sword in vain, its sword-bearing functions, and we can say without any ambiguity, are not always carried out, carried out according to divine justice. The state is given that authority, but they often abuse that authority. And so there are times when the state orders to kill must be disobeyed. Its word is not final, and nor is its justice ultimate. Political theologian William Kavanaugh he puts it this way, and I think he gets it right. He said, It is always the task of Christians to question the necessity of war and to go to war only if it is in obedience to the will of God, not the state. The Christian must always be prepared 
to be a selective, conscientious objector and refuse the right to fight in any war that results from mere human command and not the command of God. And so it's the church's responsibility to measure the state's command against the divine command and to obey when they're in agreement, but to disobey when they're not. Now, to make judgment on such matters, the church has developed what's called the just war tradition. Uh, It's something that we have no time for, but it's certainly worth your consideration. It's a long, ongoing dialogue about how we should uh, uh, judge what is God's will in these areas and what is not. But we also, at this point, need to make a distinction between the police and the military. As a police officer, the task of determining the divine will is at once easier and more difficult. It's easier because in the police force, uh, lethal force is always the last resort. You know, contrary to the propaganda that's around, officers show remarkable restraint in the face of mortal danger. And for that, um, their courage and bravery, they can only be commended. They can only be honored. Yet it's also more difficult because within a split second, a situation can turn deadly. And when there isn't time to mull um, over matters of justice, what is the Lord's will? What is not the Lord's will? When you're reacting at it within, a, within a hair's breadth, we can only pray for our brothers and sisters in those situations and ask that the Lord would grant them mercy and grace to do His will. Now, in the military, it's quite a different matter. The moral reasoning remains immensely difficult, but in most circumstances, time is afforded. Before a campaign is launched, there's time to discern whether it adheres to divine justice or not. Its intentions can be weighed, along with the probability of success and its proportionality, or its proportionality, rather, to the offense and whether or not more peaceful options can be pursued. So you see in all this, and, and, and I want to just say there's so much to consider here, and I'm just offering general considerations. We don't have time to, to really get into every last little detail. But I think the point is, and I think this will guide us in the right direction at least, is that one citizenship in heaven trumps one citizenship on earth. Certainly, like I said, there's more to be said, but I think that rule is sufficient to guide us in the right direction. Always bearing in mind that life is not ours to take, you shall not kill, but only that those commands to kill can only be carried out when they're in agreement with the divine will, again, will always lead us to defer to God, to to, to seek out the justice of those matters. So, there's overlap between the church's vocation and the state's, the, the keys and the sword. Not institutionally, but individually. Believers are permitted to assist the state in its sword-bearing functions, but that overlap runs in both directions. And this is where I'd like to end our message. The church's vocation of mercy and forgiveness ought to exercise a tempering influence on the state's vocation of justice and retribution. Initially, that takes place simply by reminding the state that its judgments are penultimate 
and provisional. It bears the sword by divine authorization, but the Spirit is not at work in its operations. The state can judge, but it cannot transform, it cannot renew, and it cannot reconcile. And it's when the state trusts too much in its own power to transform that it becomes most oppressive. Seeing itself as a savior, as knowing exactly what to do in your life, it has the justification it needs to act carte blanche, right? To do whatever it wants to do. So the church stands as a witness to remind the state of its limited role, that it's, that it's sequestered to the old age. The church can extend lavish mercy to sinners, and we are all here today as testimony to that fact, the church can extend that mercy rather than punishing because the Spirit is present in its operations. The sword can slay but not make alive. The Spirit can do both. The church is the only human community where redeeming power is present. And sometimes it needs to remind the state of that fact. Salvation is of the Lord. It's in the Lord's house. So, the church's vocation tempers the state by deflating its pretensions, but also by calling for mercy and forgiveness in the public square. Now, ideally, the church should not be the lackey of the state, giving a hasty yes to whatever the state does, but a counselor. The church should be a teacher to the state, blunting the edge of the sword that it bears, or keeping it from, bear, from being swung altogether. And so the church's principal role to the state is to advocate for mercy. Now that means that in cases of war and the death penalty and others where the sword comes into play, the church should raise the necessary, albeit unpopular voice of forgiveness. The church's witness in the public square ought to reflect the proclamation that it's grounded in. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And as Jesus says to the woman caught in adultery, where are your accusers? So we should advocate for that position of mercy. Now, on an individual scale, and this is where I want to bring things home, the vocation is the same. The vocation is the same. Advocating for mercy in whatever situations and places we find ourselves in. And at the very least, that means that we abstain from judgment upon others, whether formal or informal. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, Let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. The Lord is near. It's translated here as gentle, but the actual meaning is closer to moderation or forbearance as the older translations have it. And the sense is something like this. The nearness of divine judgment demands humility in judging, showing mercy as we hope to receive mercy. And the scriptures teach us that judgment is to claim an innocence that one cannot claim, to set oneself above another. Romans chapter 2, verse 1, you have no excuse Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice 
the same things. And it's not only to exalt ourselves above our brother, but worse still, to ignore the universal judgment of God. James chapter 4, verse 12, There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So, to renounce judgment upon others, or else to show great moderation in judgment, is simply to show respect or to give the respect that we owe to God's judgment. We shall all stand before His throne, not as the subject of judgment, but as the object of judgment. Not as judges, but as offenders. And if we hope to receive mercy, we have better shown mercy. As Jesus says, by your standard of measure, it shall be measured to you. And so that truth ought to inform every decision we make as the church, right? I'm speaking to us who have received the abundant and infinite mercy and and patience and grace of God. That truth ought to inform every decision we make, especially when we're put in the place of judgment over another. Are we quick to call for the sword or do humility and moderation prompt us to mercy? Now, it's something worth considering. As people responsible, uh, whether as rather employees or employers, as someone responsible to exercise judgment, or if you're just acting informally, as a parent or a friend or in whatever other position we occupy, we are called to be salt and light, a witness to the infinite mercy and patience and love of God in Christ. And now, with glad hearts, we recognize that mercy and patience in our own lives. We ask with the psalmist, Psalm 143, verse 2, Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no man living is righteous. And again we say with him, Psalm 130, verse 3, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Yet... We rejoice with the Apostle. I thank Jesus Christ our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience and his example for those who believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.